All right. Well, David, this is the perfect time to talk about one of our favorite companies, Statsig. Yes. When we had VJ on ACQ2 earlier this year, they were already a pretty impressive kind of Series B stage startup with a killer team and early product market fit. But what's happened since and the scale that they're operating at now is pretty wild. This is where we get lucky in being very choosy with our sponsors. Sometimes these things happen to them while we're mid-flight. Yes. So I asked them for some fun stats. In the past month, Statsig shipped actual live product experiments to over 1.2 billion end users. Now, that stat is not deduplicated across apps, so there's some overlap. But I mean, even if you cut that in half to approximate actual flesh and blood human people out there, that's almost 10% of the world's population. Crazy. Okay, so that's one. Two, Statsig now processes about 130 billion events per day. So the infrastructure that Statsig now has to support these data volumes is pretty wild. And it's not like they just execute these events. They then take all the data from them, run huge statistical jobs across the whole corpus to compute the experiment results that their customers are running. It is just wild. It's funny, I hadn't thought to make this comparison until right now. So you said 1.7 million events a second. If you look at the visa numbers, I just pulled up my visa notes, Visa does 8,600 transactions per second. So that's, what, 200 times as much throughput at Statsig than at Visa? On the customer side, Statsig added arguably almost all of the most important AI companies in the world this year, including Microsoft, Atlassian, Anthropic, along, of course, with regular old companies like Notion and UiPath and Lattice and Brex and friends of the show Rec Room. The team also kept shipping super fast. At the start of the year, they had just one core product. Today, they're a full-fledged product understanding platform. They have dedicated feature flagging, warehouse native experimentation, and product analytics. Yep. So if your team wants the best platform in the world for making data-driven product decisions, you should reach out. Statsig.com slash acquired. And as always, there is special white glove onboarding for all acquired listeners. Our huge thanks to Statsig. Who got the truth? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Who got the truth now? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Sit me down. Say it straight. Another story on the way. Who got the truth? Welcome to episode 28 of Acquired, the podcast where we talk about technology acquisitions and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. Today's episode is on the Amazon IPO, and we have an incredibly special guest with us today, Tom Alberg. So Tom, we know very well because he was one of the co-founders of Madrona, uh, which actually brought Ben and me together. Uh, and uh, none of us would be here if it weren't for Tom. But uh, in addition to being a co-founder of Madrona, he has had another very special role over the last 20 plus years, which is board member of Amazon.com. And Tom was the first investor and the first and... I guess other than Jeff, longest serving board member of Amazon. Right. Um, so we thought it would be fun. Uh, we will get through the whole IPO story here. But to read Tom's bio from the S1 uh, that Amazon filed in, in advance of going public. So Mr. Alberg has been a director of the company, Amazon, since June 1996. 
Mr. Alberg has been a principal in Madrona Investment Group, LLC, a, quote, private merchant banking firm since January 1996. From April 91 to October 95, he was president and director of Lynn Broadcasting Corporation. And from July 1990 to October 1995, he was executive vice president of Macaw Cellular Communications. Both companies were providers of cellular telephone services and are now part of AT&T Corp. Prior to 1990, Mr. Alberg was a partner at the law firm of Perkins Coie, where he also served as chairman of the firm's executive committee. He is also a director of Active Voice, uh, Active Voice Corporation, Emeritus Corporation, Mosaics Inc., Teledesic Corporation, and Vizio Corporation. Mr. Alberg received his BA from Harvard University and his JD from Columbia Law School. So are any of those other companies still in business except for Amazon? No, I think, um, well, Vizio was acquired for a good price by Microsoft, I think over a billion dollars. But you also left out, uh, for example, that I, you know, learned the multiplication tables in third grade and probably was class president in fifth grade. I mean, how can you miss <laughs> these things? At uh, Ballard High School, right? Right, right here Ballard in High School eventually, right. Once again, thanks to Tom for joining us. We're super honored to have him on the show. Let's start with the Amazon story. So I expect... Most listeners are familiar with um, the lore of how Amazon came to be, but we'll retell it briefly here leading up to the IPO and um, ask Tom some fun questions along the way. So Amazon was founded in the summer of 1994, but actually started uh, the idea a little bit before that when Jeff Bezos was a vice president at the hedge fund D.E. Shaw and Company in New York. And uh, David Shaw, the founder of D.E. Shaw, uh, assigned Jeff to think about business opportunities enabled by this new thing called the internet. And Jeff went off and did a bunch of research. And uh, as legend has it, he came across this one report about the growth of the internet that projected that it would grow 2300% annually for the next you know decade or so. Uh, and he kind of read that and decided, that's it. I got to be a part of this. I don't want to miss this boat. Um, so he and his wife, Mackenzie, who uh, he also worked with at D.E. Shaw, they quit their jobs, and they road-tripped across country to the West Coast with no particular destination in mind other than starting a company at the end of it. Uh, Jeff writes the business plan for what would become Amazon along the way, and they end up here in Seattle, where they start Amazon on July 5th, 1994, in a garage in Bellevue. Speaking later about this journey, Jeff um, would come to talk a bunch about what he terms the regret minimization framework. Uh, and this is a quote. Uh, there's a great piece in Wired magazine, I think from 1999, interviewing Jeff and uh, ask him about why he decided to leave and start, um, start Amazon. He said, when I'm 80, am I going to regret leaving Wall Street? No. Will I regret missing a chance to be here at the beginning of the internet? Yes. <laughs> So even in those early days, Jeff's kind of long-term thinking is evident there. And I'm, and I'm curious for Tom, um, is the regret minimization framework something that Jeff talks about in the context of Amazon? How, what's your experience with that been? Well, Jeff is a, um, yeah, he's a big picture, long-term thinker. So um, I don't think we've really focused so much on that. I mean, I think it was important for him in terms of that decision. Um, but maybe it underlies a lot of his feeling on, Let's try things, and uh, um, we can only regret that we didn't try something. We can never regret that we tried something, even if it fails. So very much in the mode of failure is okay, 
um, not trying things is not okay. Awesome. And uh, along those lines, uh, uh, thinking about the origin of the idea for Amazon.com, as I was reading the Everything Store, uh, it says that Jeff and and David were on a walk through Central Park when when Jeff told him he was going to leave. And and uh, David Shaw, the the founder of DE Shaw, who Jeff worked for. Yes, thank you, David. Um, and it, it it occurred to me, not me. <laughs> <laughs> Although that would have been awesome. <laughs> It occurred to me, you know, the intellectual property and all this original research that had been done for Amazon would have been done at D.E. Shaw. What did that look like? And was that ever sort of a concern that D.E. Shaw would come back later with any sort of claim to the the idea for Amazon.com? Yeah, well, he uh, Jeff had signed a um, non-compete and a non-solicitation agreement. And I don't remember actually worrying about the non-compete, which, you know, in retrospect is kind of interesting. But... Um, and actually, uh, Shaw did start a couple of early internet companies that Jeff was not a part of. And they even had a, a voicemail, uh, not a voicemail, but an email company that developed and then went public and in the late nineties and merged with somebody. But, um, but we, he did, we did talk about, and Jeff paid strict attention to the, um, non-solicitation of employees. And it was a two year limit. And so, um, Jeff, uh, you know, there were people at D.E. Shaw, at least one person, who really wanted to desperately come with Jeff and really... Was uh, was Jeff Holden at... No, so Jeff Holden... Well, Jeff Holden might have been. That might have been the uh, Jeff Holden. Jeff was at D.E. Shaw, and, I mean, the story is that... And Jeff is now, I think, SVP of product at Uber? Yes, I think so. He, yeah, Jeff has had an interesting... Uh, uh, Holden has had an interesting career, and... We once looked at investing Madrona at a company he had started. The valuation was only about uh, pre-money at $80 million or something. Wow. <laughs> Cheap and so, so we passed on that one. But the um, but uh, the story is that when the two years expired, uh, Jeff Bezos immediately called Jeff Holden and said, pack your bags and come to Seattle, which he did. And, uh, and then several other people from D.E. Shaw followed, but... So in the early days of the company, before uh, before uh, it was obvious Amazon was doing well and could recruit all these former coworkers of Jeff's from D.E. Shaw, um, they spent a whole year actually building the site. Uh, so from the summer of 94 till the summer of 95, um, they build the site. Uh, and then they launch Amazon.com almost exactly a year later in July 1995. Um, and along the way, they raise, uh, Amazon raises its first seed investment. And Tom, you were, uh, the first, uh, led that first round of, of angels that invested in Amazon. How did that come together? How did you meet Jeff and, and end up, uh, deciding to do this? Well, the short part of the story is that Jeff was out raising that first million dollars and, um, and began in kind of, early 1995 and he was calling on people and a lawyer friend of mine older lawyer um, called me and said his investment group he had a little angel investment group that they had met with Jeff and they didn't really understand this new internet thing and would I meet with Jeff and give them advice as to whether this was for real and so and your background was in the cellular industry yeah I was at that time wrapping up selling uh, Macaw Cellular and uh, Lynn Broadcasting to AT&T. But I did know something about um, about the Internet. But this was very beginning. You know, um, Netscape went public, I think, in like September, that fall of 95. And three of the key employees at 
at uh, Macaw, I'd been recruited by Netscape, the president, the CFO, and the general counsel. So I had, you know, I was intrigued by it. But anyway, um, but, uh, you know, you never always say, no, I don't know anything about it. You say, sure. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that good, sounds like good. a very Bezos like approach to things. Yeah. Well, it's a good thing I said, sure. Uh, <laughs> The, anyway, uh, Jeff then called me, and uh, I met with him, and he laid out what he was planning to do. And um, and the company, the, the website hadn't launched at this no, point, right? this was like uh, May of 95, and the website launching in July. And so I was impressed by Jeff. To say that I foresaw what Amazon was going to become would be not true. <laughs> I don't think anybody, <laughs> including Jeff, probably didn't fully I'm sure he did not foresee what it became. I mean, he was he was excited about the growth of the Internet. He had done a lot of research. He had focused on books because it had this ability to have this enormous uh, catalog of books that no single bookstore could afford to carry. And so I reported back to my friend and said, um, I think it's for real. Well, you know, it's very risky, but... Um, and Jeff is for real. He's obviously a smart guy. He's very passionate about it. And so then my friend who had referred it to me a couple of weeks later, he called me back and he said, well, we called Jeff then after we talked to you and we told him that the $6 million pre-money valuation was too high and asked him to lower it to $5 million and he was unwilling to do it. Oh, my <laughs> God. So for years so after- So passed. So he passed. Oh, my so God. So years afterwards, and I a really wonderful, a wonderful guy, um, years afterward, he would- Give me a hard time. <laughs> I bet. About the huge price there, that you paid. So the point, the point of it is it took Jeff almost 12 months. He didn't close until December of 95, this million dollars. Part of it came from his family, and um, lots of people passed on it, and which is not surprising. Yeah. And there were a couple of kind of uh, small venture firms at that time in Seattle. They passed on it. It was too risky um, in their mind, and it had a lot of risk. So, Tom, you've seen thousands of, of startup pitches and met with countless entrepreneurs yeah, over right, the years. Right. Was Jeff like like head and shoulders above any other pitch or was this like super different or was it like, yeah, you know, I meet with a, a lot of really talented mm -hmm. people with great ideas and mm -hmm. some work and some don't? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, you know, you, looking back, it's a little hard, but I don't think he stood out as the only great entrepreneur I ever met, um, but certainly in the top, you know, 20 or 10 percent. Um, but it was a combination, you know, like a lot of venture. Um, you know, we tend to think the person is very important, um, but also kind of what they're doing. I mean, it's not always exactly the business plan and the financial model, although that's important. It's often are they in the right kind of technology yeah. and, and the right growth market. area. Yeah. And because uh, you could come up with lots of reasons why this was not going to succeed. And uh, but the Internet was growing. Um, some commerce was probably going to work. At 2,300% a year, apparently. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, it strikes me, one of the things, we talk about this a lot on this show about, you know, the importance of the market and, and targeting large markets. And um, uh, it struck me reading Jeff's early writing about Amazon, and, and in particular, which we'll get to later, uh, the first letter to shareholders after they went public. Um, he really focuses on the market and, and, and illustrates how large the market mm -hmm. is, even, even for just books, but then everything Amazon expanded into is. And when you're operating in a large market, um, a lot can still go wrong and it can go wrong and you'll still be successful. Uh, so that was 1995. And um, when the website finally launched in the summer, it was, it's funny, you know, I mean, we work with 
at Madrona, Tom, many, many startups and Ben and me several as well. Um, it actually was an overnight success, <laughs> uh, when, uh, by the, this is actually Tom, a quote from you in that same wired article, uh, quote, by the second or third week, there was 6,000 or $10,000 in sales. And by the end of September, they just launched in July, Amazon was doing $20,000 in revenue a week. It was, and this is Tom, it was clear there was a trend here. <laughs> <laughs> good, good understatement. Yeah. Understatement of the century. Um, as that became clear later into 1995 and, and 1996, uh, lots of VC firms came calling, uh, and, uh, Amazon and Jeff eventually decided to raise a larger venture round that Kleiner Perkins led in 1996 and John Doerr joined the board. Um, how did that come together? Well, um, you know, we had, uh, Jeff had formed a small advisory board of, uh, himself and three other Seattle investors, including myself. And, um, so this was not, there wasn't a formal company board at this no, point, right? The, the formal company board was Jeff. And, but he wasn't ready for a board, but he was ready for an advisory board. So, so we would talk about, you know, like a board in the sense of, um, you know, what do we need to do? You know, gee, it's growing very fast. We got to improve the website. We need to do, you know, other things. And so it was becoming clear that it was growing fast, that it was going to take more money. Um, than the million dollars, partly just to satisfy growth. And, um, and, and, uh, venture capital firms from around the country were calling. And so I came home one night, uh, after work at six o'clock or something. And my wife said, do you know some guy named John Doerr? And I said, well, actually, <laughs> actually I do. And I had, in fact, actually, I've heard of him. when I was on the Vizio board, one of his partners was on that board. And I guess a couple different ways I, I had met John, and so she says, well, he calls every 15 minutes, and he needs to talk to you now. <laughs> so That's that, I mean, amazing. It illustrates one of John's great strengths, which is persistence. Um, tells you something about how to sell yourself, uh, show your interest. A critical trait for yeah, any successful think, venture capitalist. Yeah, we don't always you know, follow that enough, probably. But um, And so I talked to John, and he said, well, I'm going to meet with Jeff. I really want to be in this deal. I hope you can help me, etc. And so that was sort of uh, partly the introduction. So they were really eager. Another firm that was very eager was uh, General Atlantic, which is an East Coast firm. Yep. And uh, I kind of one interesting point out of it, I think, is that there was some negotiation on price, and both firms were eager. Both were outstanding firms, and um, General Atlantic proposed a complicated pricing. Because we're starting to talk, uh, you know, $80 million pre-money. And that was, although that era started to get hot, it was, you know, reasonably high pre-money for a first venture round. And, um, but they proposed sort of a complicated thing. It would be, you know, $90 million pre-money if it went public. But if it didn't go public within two years at a certain valuation, then it was, you know, $50 million. And Kleiner came in with sort of like a straight $60 million at some point. It was a little bit lower than the upside. and I think I think we all kind of favored uh, Kleiner Perkins anyway, but uh, picked Kleiner Perkins partly though on the pricing complication. So when that round closed, is that when the formal board of directors was established yep, with right. you and John and Jeff? Yeah, yeah, okay. uh, yeah. And a little bit of story there that I think come out before, but um, uh, Kleiner Perkins, uh, Jeff, uh, John actually said, "Well, I love you, but I'm so busy. I'm on all these other boards." Um, he was on the Netscape board, I think, at that time. Right, right. 
and I really don't have time. And so, but but here I've got a great partner here that will be on the board. And Jeff uh, sort of said, "Well, that's I'm sorry, you know, too bad," sort of thing, and talked to us, and and uh, we said, "Or uh, well, why don't you just tell him that Kleiner can only invest if John comes on the board?" <laughs> so Jeff, of course, did, and John joined the board. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, which was uh, you know good good for Amazon and good for. Kleiner and, and John, obviously. Yeah. I, well, and I'm curious on that. So in the Everything Store, talks about how, it, and I don't know how much of this is causal, but after that Kleiner invested and John joined the, the board, um, that Jeff kind of adopted as a mantra, get big fast. Was that, uh, how did that come together? And and, and in, in truth, I mean, Amazon did get very big, very fast. Right. Um, was that really was that associated with an investment? What drove that that mindset change for you? No, I think part of it just came from the fact that we were growing fast. Um, the original business plan back when he was uh, raising the million dollars was he had kind of a moderate growth and a fast growth, but nothing like what he was achieving. And the plan actually said he would break even in year two. Uh, <laughs> and again, it's sort of one. Of, fortunately, that didn't he, happen. He meant to rate year twenty, <laughs> right? Right, and so. Um, but it was growing fast. So I th- and um, Jeff um, also had one of his uh, sort of thesis is sometimes there's uh, in, in launching a new business there's a land rush. You want to be first and get the lead, get into the lead, and stay there. And other times, and this is true in launching new projects on Amazon. Sometimes he feels there's a land rush, and sometimes not. And so you really double down and 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 then the financial markets were clearly. Uh, Willing. I mean, we yeah, were in a hot. Robust. Already, the financial markets were bidding up other companies, and so he he realized that he could raise a lot of money, and so let's grow fast. And and we had the the specter of of Barnes and Noble sort of right. saying they're going to get in the internet. So there was a there was a reason then to really uh, step on you know the accelerator. And and you you and Jeff did so in. 1995, which is the first half year of operations, Amazon did about 500,000 in revenue. Um, and then in 1996, and it was the summer when, when Kleiner invested, so only half a year with this extra capital to grow, Amazon did just a hair under 16 million in revenue, mm-hmm. um, which is, uh, what's that, a, a 20, uh, it's, it's a, that's a, that's a large amount of growth. <laughs> Any, it's so large. I can't even right. calculate it in my brain. And, uh, I mean, even today, like, right. we that's, don't see companies do that. No, not uh, in the first year. And, and at this point we were still in the era of amazon.com was only a bookstore. When, uh, Jeff was putting together kind of the pitch deck for that $60 million round and, and showing it around. Was there any inkling that it was going to be more than books at this point? Did he start to foreshadow those other categories? Jeff, uh, in those early years, was very focused on books. I mean, he declined to even talk about other things for the first two or three years. And I think that was including through the IPO, as I remember. Um, and partly was, let's do books well. And books is is big. Yep. Um but other people were starting to ask and, and talk about, well, what about other products? And, you know, I suspect Jeff was thinking about that. But we, but it, it was good, I think, in the beginning, just let's get this one right. And um, it was, I can't remember when, but it was probably 98 or so that really launched uh, music and started to launch some other things. And movies. Um, so at the end of 96, 
just done 16 million in revenue. Um, Amazon hires Joy Covey, uh, as CFO, who, um, plays a central role in the everything store. Um, and, uh, and the company makes the decision and the board makes the decision, uh, that they wanted to prepare for an IPO and go public, uh, in 1997, which, uh, so at this point, we are, two years into the life of Amazon as a company, one year into it being a publicly available website. Um, you've, you've talked a little bit about the the financial markets being open, but how did those discussions, I mean, the board was you and John Doerr and Jeff. Um, did Jeff come to you and say, hey, I think we're ready to go public? Well, I think, you know, pretty quickly investment bankers were even calling. I mean, it's, you know, when, once a... Uh, something starts to get hot, you know, whether there's substance in these companies or not, there's sort of an investment banker. And that was particularly true in the 95 to 2000 era. You know, people were going public and being worth $30 billion and really didn't have much. Um, It didn't quite happen that way with Amazon because even though there was interest, and I think one one of Jeff's motivations, I think the idea that we could raise money at hopefully good valuations and then uh, use that money to grow further was attractive. He also felt that because it was kind of a small, relatively unknown retail company, that it would help the brand to get better known. And, um, you know, I think that's true on some uh, consumer-oriented companies. It actually can be true even on enterprise startups. Um, We have one uh, impinge that went public this year, and they were not widely known among CEOs. Everybody at the CIO knew them. But once you get public, you know, you start to get picked up more in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. It certainly happened to Amazon after it went public. Um, what was the preparation process like? And I'm, in particular, I'm curious. Um, so uh, the lead left uh, bank on the Amazon IPO was Deutsche Bank, uh, not Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley. We covered the Facebook IPO a few episodes ago and um, uh, talked about the the jockeying between the two of those firms for the Facebook IPO. You know, these are the the gold plated Wall Street firms that everybody wants one of them to be their uh, their lead book runner for for the IPO. But Amazon went with Deutsche Bank and in particular the lead banker Frank Frank Quattrone and the lead analyst Bill Gurley, who obviously is now partner at uh, partner at Benchmark. Um, how did how did that relationship come together? If you've met and know Quattrone and Gurley, the, the answer is Quattrone and Gurley. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, a broader answer is, you know, I think, you know, Jeff always had the view and we had the view that big name companies aren't always the best. You know, uh, Goldman and, and um, Morgan Stanley have been the top two f- then and today. And there's a lot of merit in um, going with with them. But it didn't mean that other others weren't um, as good or potentially better. And often it is the people directly working the deal. And so I think they made a good impression and we thought they could do the job. And there's a, there's a great story told in the everything store that after the IPO, they organized a, a retreat in Hawaii. Right. And, uh, and that Mexico, uh, I think, Oh, uh, Mexico. That's right. I think it was Cabo. And, um, and they had an associate working on the deal uh, who was Jeff Blackburn. And uh, Blackburn came along on this uh, on mm. this retreat and, and I'm sure had interacted with uh, 
with Jeff, uh, with, <laughs> there's so many Jeffs at Amazon with Bezos and the company and, and, and the board beforehand. But, uh, the net of that was that Blackburn ended up joining Amazon and is still at the company today and member of, um, member of the senior team there. Right. One of the top executives. Yeah. So one of the biggest, um, uh, the biggest things that, that people who've studied Amazon look at now and is, is quite well known is their ability to, to spin the flywheel, to um, add fuel at any given point and, and increase the momentum of, of other parts of the businesses in a very um, almost perpetual motion way. So that, that superior selection drives a better customer experience, which increases more traffic, which brings more sellers to marketplace and on and on and on. And which, it's all which lowers prices and increases selection, and <laughs> yeah. uh, it's a it's a recursive loop. It, it is. Had, had this uh, this early in the company, uh, you know, before the IPO, was this uh, something that was frequently talked about, and was this a, a thing on investors' minds when they were thinking about investing in the IPO? So, yeah, the, the actual flywheel concept developed uh, in like two thousand one or two. It rose out of a, a board meeting and. and meeting with an outside uh, consultant. But some of the basis of that, I mean, Jeff, from the very beginning, was very focused on customer experience. And, you know, you and he talked in the meeting with me about we're going to have the world's best customer experience. And it was hard to do in those days because the web wasn't very good. We had, you know, eventually when we launched, it was a black and white website. Yeah. There was no publication date on the book. So if you wanted to buy a travel, I mean, I complained about this. If you wanted to buy a travel book, you didn't know if it was published 20 <laughs> years ago or or six months ago. And on a travel book, it's very important. So, you know, but nonetheless, he, he, it was like it was genetic, that uh, customer experience. And then, so how do you do that? Well, prices, inventory. And so it was in the background, certainly, and, and uh, focused, uh, you know, some of those elements the flywheel metaphor became useful later, I think. Hearing you talk about that, I mean, one, um, as longtime listeners of this show know, uh, we are great admirers of Ben Thompson and his aggregation theory. Um, but uh, one of the core tenets of that is, uh, is that superior customer experiences win in, uh, in, uh, in a world where um, your accessible customer base is infinite. Uh, and distribution costs are low, mm-hmm. which is the internet. Right. Um, right. And uh, really interesting to hear that that even in those early days when the internet was mm-hmm. so poorly understood by so many people, Jeff got that at his core that uh, providing the superior customer experience would lead to winning the market. And not all the companies get that. I mean, partly they're focused on short term. Partly, yeah, how do we squeeze another two cents out of the customer? Um, gee, we cut out this product, then we save money. So, all of this happens. Quatron and Gurley win the business, uh, lead the IPO, and on May 15th, 1997, so less than three years after the company was founded and less than two years after the product launch. I mean, we were talking mm-hmm. last week about how Snapchat is to be lauded for going public, having the courage to go public, courage, uh, four years after company founding. This was less than three years. Uh, Amazon prices its IPO at $18 a share. Raises $54 million at an initial market cap of $438 million, um, which is thinking back today, we'll, we'll, well, we'll wrap up at the end of the show with where the market cap is today. But um, it trades up on the first day, closes at $23.50. But then for the first couple months, it actually trades down. Uh, and um, 
it's not until the company reports its Q2 revenue numbers later that summer uh, that the shares, uh, when they report that they did 28 million in revenue in Q2 of 1997, um, which was more than all of, well, mm-hmm. m- much more than Q1 and more than they did in all of 1996, right, right, right. then the shares rise again. What was it like in those those first couple months after the company went public and the stock traded down and yeah, you're right. It didn't have this enormous pop at the beginning. And yeah, I think by, you know, I vividly remember some of this, that it was pretty flat for uh, until those earnings release came out. And even by the um, end of the second quarter, so late June, I think it was. So the equivalent to, to today, so if you, um, there's been three or four splits, which are equivalent for 12 for one. So if you divide yep. 18 by 12, you get to $1.50. Yep. And um, and so it was trading about $1.50 in late June. And then um, wow. just a couple of other key points, because you can do this, you know, endlessly. But um, by the end of the year, it was like $5. And then it went to 100 over three years or so in, in those in today's yep, and, numbers. And then the stock split multiple times yeah. after that. Yep. But by 2001, when you had the recession and the, all the crashes, it was back down to like $6. So there were moments when you could have bought in at good <laughs> prices and everybody, you know, it, it, it shows partly that the market is not perfect at valuation. But on the other hand, you know, the country was in a recession by 2001 and- And Amazon is a retailer. And it was losing a lot of money and- Many people were predicting even then that it was going to die. So, um, but it, it, yeah, it's kind of fascinating to go back over those numbers. Oh yeah, I bet. One of the things we talk about a lot on this show is is we try to assess whether an acquisition or an IPO was was mm-hmm. a, a good move and and um, you know how successful was it. And one of the measures that we uh, we use for that with um, IPOs is what going public enabled that company to do that they would not otherwise been able have been able to do. So what in the kind of near term, those next few years after the IPO, did they, you know, plow that new influx of capital into? Well, I think, you know, Amazon has been rightly known for um, not making any money and being willing to, um, to invest and, um, to the extent that the financial markets allow you to. And so I think if it had been in the hands of, let's say, an acquiring party, um, you would not have seen this kind of um, growth and then innovation no. and, and expansion. So, um, you know, Jeff has had a unique ability to think long-term and make it clear he's thinking long-term so that the investors understand that this is a long-term investment. And he likes to say that you get the investors you ask for, meaning <laughs> that if you focus on, you know, uh, two that. cents more yeah. profit per quarter, then you get investors who focus on that. And if you, you know, it takes you a while, I think, to get the the, the right kind of investors. But if if you say long term cash flow is how we measure the business, pretty soon you get investors who are willing to to uh, to invest on that basis and. I mean, it's possible if you don't grow, they weren't going to like your message and sell, but, but you end up with fewer short-term investors and more long-term. I think that's helped uh, Amazon a lot. So I, I'm super curious on this. We were, we were chatting before a little bit before the show, but, um, and this is the perfect place in the story too. So at the end of 1997, 
uh, Amazon wraps up the year with 148 million in revenue, up from 16 the year before. Um, incredible growth. But I think, to my mind, the most incredible thing that happens at the end of 1997 is Jeff publishes his first annual letter to shareholders. Uh, so the company's been public for seven or eight months at this point. Um, and uh, Jeff writes this this amazing letter that uh, is included in the annual report, and he's included every year since with his then current year letter as well. Um, and, and the document is is a uh, masterpiece of long term thinking. How how did that document come together? Uh, did did Jeff just walk into a board meeting one day and say, "Hey, I think I'm going to write a letter to all of our shareholders"? Yeah. Um, well, I wasn't. You know, I didn't help him write it. Unfortunately, I wish I was a co-author. But I think, you know, one of the key people in those early days was this Joy Covey, who had been recruited as the CFO. And thinking back a little bit on that, when we started talking about going public, um, John Doerr said, well, I'm going to vote against going public unless you bring in some more senior management. You can't go public with you and a couple of technical people. Oh, wow. And so, I mean, it's been a rule that sometimes we violate, but it's a very good, I think, rule that you you need uh, – being private is different than going public. Even if you're growing pretty well, you need a really first-class CFO. You need some more marketing power. Uh, it's when David Risher was recruited from Microsoft, who was a very important, strong – um, senior executive in those days. We brought in, um, hired some more, um, Rick Dalzell, all that. Mm-hmm. He, he was actually at Walmart and Jeff started trying to recruit him in January of 97 before the IPO and didn't get him until after the IPO. But the, um, but so, and I think Jeff wasn't reluctant on that either. Um, but it was really John in a lot of ways saying, you've got to have a stronger, bigger team to go public. And I think it's a good good lesson for, for lots of people. So Joy was, and she also really, Joy was unusual. She was very smart. She hadn't graduated from high school. She ended up graduating from Harvard Business School. She came in second in the nation on the national accounting exam. <laughs> so clearly she was smart. And Joy somehow- was an amazing woman, yeah. Yeah, and she- all she had done in some ways, she had taken, uh, she'd been CFO of a small company in the East Coast that had gone public. I believe she was in her early 30s when yeah, she joined right, Amazon. Very young. But, you know, and Jeff was interviewed. Jeff's a very tough interviewer in the sense that, you know, he, he will interview a whole bunch of people until he finds somebody that he likes and thinks can do the job. He talks about, you know, setting the bar very high. And he had, he had a great lunch with her. He was impressed with her. Um, and she's very smart, um, nicely aggressive, personable. And so she really drove the IPO in a lot of ways. And I like to say, you know, we set a record for start of the IPO to the finish. But she was also involved in that letter, I think. Wow. Speaking of the the IPO start to finish, was that hard for the company uh, in an era where it had been doing so much PR and so much marketing and Jeff had been doing all these public uh, appearances to mm-hmm. endure that quiet period? Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, it was an era when, yes, the company was starting to get a lot of, a lot of attention. Um, and, um, I don't know that the quiet period made a, made a lot of difference. Um, we did get some criticism then and even today on how much, uh, we disclosed beyond what the securities laws and New York, you know, the, um, NASDAQ requires that, you know, you, you disclose everything you have to, but 
there's always this sort of area of, well, what's the cost of a customer? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, how many customers do you have or how fast is books growing versus video? And Amazon's always felt uh, that that's proprietary. They don't want to let their customers know. They also don't want people focusing on what are in some ways short-term small things and it'll work out in the long term. And I think I think maybe bricks and mortar retailers, do they release monthly sales numbers or something? You at least yeah, see them. Same store, month yeah, over month. Right, right. Well, very, yeah. you know, that's an example then of something. And so there's always been a little bit of tension um, with with the analysts wanting more and feeling, well, you know, it's only going to help our competitors. So I think that was going on even then. It was sort of like, well, who are you to uh, not yeah. tell us these things? Well, it's, it's interesting in thinking about um, company creation from the earliest yeah. stages. You're, you get so focused on that cost to acquire a customer number yeah, and making right, that go right. down and increasing your lifetime customer value. Um in in Amazon's life as a public company, they're they're so re- reserved about releasing that information. Have you ever uh, experienced in other private companies uh, someone who felt that that was proprietary and that was not something they would they would divulge in their their pitch decks or anything like that? Yeah, I don't know about that specific piece. I mean, I do think sometimes it also comes up. Well, um, another one for you know some of our companies that have gone public has been um, backlog. And mm-hmm. backlog often, if some companies have backlog and some don't in different ways, but, um, and that wasn't really an issue with Amazon because it was sort of instantaneous sales from any, any, any day. But, um, a lot of companies don't want to disclose it because it's misleading sometimes and maybe it tells things to competitors. Yeah. And so I think a lot of companies refuse to do that and analysts would love to have it. And, and it also relates to, uh, predicting, you know, a range for next quarter or next year. Some some of our companies will give you next year's kind of general expectation, and some won't. Um, I th- yeah, I think there's a lot of variation in that. So the, one more. Um, we're now post IPO, and and uh, we'll we'll wrap up the IPO story in a minute with um, some fun stats. But but one topic that happened a couple years later that I want to ask you about, Tom, is. Um, in 1999, so two years after the IPO, Amazon did a convertible debt offering uh, and raised a billion and a quarter dollars in in the debt markets. Um, I'm curious that, uh, and then that ended up being, I believe, the last money into the company through the internet bubble. Um, how getting that large capitalization at that point? Um, how did that did that help survive help the company survive the crash that came thereafter and um how did it dig itself out of you know you mentioned the stock price went back down to five dollars at that point yeah so um it was part of the um you know money was available we're growing rapidly let's take advantage of the fact that and the interest rates I believe it was 5%. I think it was four and three quarters, I believe, or right around there. Which today is sort of where maybe interest rates are. But, you know, given the 20 year history, that was those were low, low interest rates. And I think we ended up, we did two or three uh, debt deals, uh, totaling a couple, uh, maybe $2 billion. So on the one hand, it did give us money to grow. Um, You know, sometimes for companies having, a lot of money lead to bad habits <laughs> and just uh you know you acquire maybe some companies you wouldn't have acquired you know that are marginal or 
you overbuild um, and so forth. And so Amazon was increasingly losing money when that recession hit, and I don't think we were any better predicting recessions than anybody else, and um, or the peak of the market. But so, but it was part of taking taking advantage of the fact that the um, that money was available. And then when the recession hit, and we were losing a lot of money, and some of the, as I remember, some of those some of the terms of some of these debts had no interest for several years and then it and kicked then in yeah interest kicked in and so we were facing you know more interest payments the debt holders the value of the debt had gone down there was a lot of pressure from the debt holders so really in uh, 2001 or so um, the decision Jeff and the board felt we we need to cut costs and expenses and so you know, we, I think we barely did it in time in some ways. We waited quite a while and because we're hoping, you know, kind of grow out of it and at some point said, no, we really need to. Uh, and there were lots of Wall Street people calling it Amazon.toast and yeah. all these famous, Famously. you know, if you're going to go out of business. And um, so we cut costs and th- there was this famous saying, cut the crap, <laughs> which meant you know they were they were shipping bags of dog food was a great example you know 20 pound dog of bag food and charging you know three dollars for shipping and losing a lot of money on yeah. well let's stop selling which is amazing because i now get dog my dog food? food for my dog from amazon <laughs> right. but well we cut it out <laughs> figured, for a while i, I assume amazon uh, has figured right. out how to do it profitably now but again it was you know so it isn't blind all speed ahead it is you know when you need to you you cut back it's, it's interesting to think about uh, the fact that the uh, pressure from that debt holders forced cost cutting, which was ahead of the rest of companies who had to go to immediate emergency cost cutting mode, and most of them didn't make it. What other factors do you think played into Amazon's uh, Amazon Survival, making it through? Yeah, yeah surviving the, uh, the burst when so many other companies didn't. Well, I, you know, it's easy sometimes to look at these and think, you know, boy, they're just following uh, crazy strategies. But I don't think that's true. At uh, was true even then at Amazon. I mean, they they were still focused on customers, and they were getting a lot of orders, um, and uh, the leverage was was a concern or a problem. Um, but underlying economics were not bad. Yeah. Uh, so. I think that helped a lot, and you know, having good management that stuck it out, and you know, was then foc- was able to focus down on on cost controls. And they're they're great stories in the everything store about about those years at Amazon and uh, the impact it had on the culture. And it, and I I think there was um, uh, after those years, did Jeff put a moratorium on M and A uh, for because they'd acquired yeah, so right, many companies right, right. and. It wasn't working. Um, yeah, no, and Amazon's you know not famous for overspending. Yeah, on, <laughs> on um, that's one way to put it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. we've talked about that on this show. Yeah, okay. We won't ask you about it. We want to thank our longtime friend of the show, Vanta, the leading trust management platform. Vanta, of course, automates your security reviews and compliance efforts, so frameworks like SOC two, ISO twenty seven zero one, GDPR, and HIPAA compliance and monitoring. Vanta takes care of these otherwise incredibly time and resource draining efforts for your organization and makes them fast and simple. Yep, Vanta is the perfect example of the quote that we talk about all the time here on Acquired. Jeff Bezos, his idea that a company should only focus on what actually makes your beer taste better 
i.e. spend your time and resources only on what's actually going to move the needle for your product and your customers and outsource everything else that doesn't. Every company needs compliance and trust with their vendors and customers. It plays a major role in enabling revenue because customers and partners demand it, but yet it adds zero flavor to your actual product. Vanta takes care of all of it for you. No more spreadsheets, no fragmented tools, no manual reviews to cobble together your security and compliance requirements. It is one single software pane of glass that connects to all of your services via APIs and eliminates countless hours of work for your organization. There are now AI capabilities to make this even more powerful, and they even integrate with over 300 external tools. Plus, they let customers build private integrations with their internal systems. And perhaps most importantly, your security reviews are now real-time instead of static, so you can monitor and share with your customers and partners to give them added confidence. So whether you're a startup or a large enterprise and your company is ready to automate compliance and streamline security reviews like Vanta's 7,000 customers around the globe and go back to making your beer taste better, head on over to vanta.com acquired and just tell them that Ben and David sent you. And thanks to friend of the show, Christina, Vanta's CEO, all acquired listeners get $1,000 of free credit. Vanta.com acquired. So to wrap up, this has been an incredible story and uh, uh, having Tom join us for it uh, has been special. Um, so today uh, we're sitting here in December 2016. Uh, as of this morning, Amazon's market capitalization was $363 billion, uh, up not quite a thousand X from the IPO when it was $438 million market cap, but um, a, a pretty healthy return. I was in, uh, let's see, I was in middle school when Amazon IPO'd. Uh, so I really, I really wish I'd put my, you know, bank account into Amazon <laughs> at that point in time. I was buying Amazon products, but, um, anyway, uh, an incredible journey and, uh, super cool to relive this, this moment in history. Let's move to talking about, uh, what would have happened otherwise. We touched on this a little bit, but, um, but, uh, you know, had Amazon not gone public at that moment, um, where, where would we be? Had and I guess in particular, uh, I'm curious. Um, was a path of being acquired by somebody in those early days? Did it ever come up? Were people seriously interested? And and even if not, like, it it sounds like it, you know from our conversation so far, and and just knowing the lore of of Jeff's mission, that very unlikely that that he wanted to sell to right. someone. Yeah. Um. Right. What was it ever on the table to um you know raise more private capital or wait it out longer? Yeah, I think. I mean, I think we could have. Um, it would have been slower growth because you couldn't have uh, afforded if you didn't have access to capital, um, and particularly when you know we we began to uh, broaden the product mix when we you know when we started um, we we would get an order for a book and then we would contact the the distributor and have them ship us the book and then we'd reship it so we didn't even really have inventory. Um, and so once you start buying product, building warehouses to put it in it, you do need capital. And so uh, obtaining capital in different ways has been, yeah, very important for Amazon. And so I think it would have it would have constrained growth. I mean, I know a lot of companies these days, they want to stay private as long as they can. And it does depend on their business model. If you've got a business model that doesn't require a lot of capital, then that's that's a viable thing. But Amazon's business model, particularly as it grew, uh, did require capital. Makes sense. Yeah, I feel like Amazon exhausted all the options. Yeah. Instead, they went. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, we did. Um, 
two two kind of events relating to that financing and and so forth. One, we had that famous meeting with Barnes and Noble back in pre IPO, where they uh, the Regio brothers came to Seattle and you know wanted to do some kind of a joint deal with Amazon, and it was they weren't actually offering to acquire, but they said, well, you can you can des- you can build our website and your own, and you can we can both have websites, or we could do it jointly. We could jointly own it. And um, Jeff, I think, rightly decided he didn't want to do that. And um, then they filed a lawsuit the day before, or three days before the IPO, because we were using the phrase, the world's biggest the world's bookstore. Biggest bookstore yeah. so, I mean, there are lessons in all that for anybody who wanted to go public that your competitors sometimes do try to take it. Take it. But really, neither they nor, nor anyone else... Uh, really made a run at us and um, partly because I think a lot of traditional companies always thought we were overvalued and so that was actually a benefit now why nobody tried it when we were five dollars you know in 2001 that's when you know they should have tried I'm not sure they would have succeeded but People, you know, the whole everybody becomes pessimistic at the same time. Everybody yeah. becomes optimistic at the same time. Well, it's time. interesting that you know, Amazon obviously, um, uh, it would be a shocker if anybody would buy Amazon today. I, I seriously doubt that's even possible. But um, Amazon as an acquirer, it feels like has kind of internalized those lessons. Uh, and I think about the the Zappos acquisition during the 2008 recession, 2008 2009, um, or the uh, or the Quincy acquisition. Um, which are, both of which are written about extensively in the Everything Store, um, it, it almost feels like Jeff and, and the company um, taking that lesson to heart that when there are good businesses targeting large markets and for whatever reason are out of favor or in the midst of a recession, um, that's the time to, to go shopping. You don't always have that luxury, but yeah. it would be <laughs> nice if you could. Should we move on to tech themes? Let's do it. Ben, you want to kick it off? Sure. So uh, and this this part of the show is where we uh, we analyze... Um, you know, specifically looking at the IPO or acquisition that we're talking about, what tech themes can we extrapolate um, either from a true technology perspective or sort of from an investment technology perspective? And there, there's a few here. I mean, I think the biggest one that we've already touched on is um, the the flywheel. When I think about Amazon, is just like the, the canonical colloquial example of how to build the world's best flywheel business where so many things feed into so many other things and fuel the business. But, you know, that wasn't really part of the IPO. As Tom told us earlier, that, that didn't really get formalized until 2001. So, um, you know, as we, we think about uh, lessons learned from the IPO, it's a lot about, um, you know, timing your uh, timing company creation correctly around new waves. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the internet was, uh, you have to believe that something is going to be a wave and be a little more contrarian than other people. I think that, uh, you know, that's evidenced by um, the investors that passed in the, the earliest stages thinking that it was it was too risky um but the the big thing for me is is yeah you you have to uh believe wholeheartedly that you're on the precipice of a wave and it's not possible to create a, you know a, a um top 10 in the world biz, uh, business without being on without being yeah wave. riding a massive wave um and i think for me the the uh flip side of that coin that that i think really shines through in in reading about and and reading this history of Amazon at that time is the the long-term thinking uh, that Jeff and, and the company and the board had even in those early days. You know, you have to, um, if you believe you've identified a wave like that, 
if it truly will become as big as you think it will, it's going to take a long time, you know, decades. Um, You know, Jeff is... Uh, famous, you know, in, in, I don't know if this was when he introduced the phrase, but in that shareholder letter in 1997 said, you know, it's day one for the internet and for Amazon. Um, and that, that, uh, perspective, uh, is, uh, is really rare to lots of people say they have it, but, um, to actually behave that way and make investments accordingly, um, is, is quite impressive. It also, you know, applies even today when, when you talk about, new projects or initiatives at Amazon or other companies. And I know Jeff likes to say it often takes 10 years to prove it. And mm-hmm. so you've got to make, after you go public, it's equally important to one, continue to innovate. Don't right. stop innovating just because you feel like you're at the top of the mountain. Um, you're not going to survive if you don't keep innovating. And the other is maintain that long-term thinking. The IPO gives you the opportunity to do that because you then have the money to do it. You have to somewhat ignore what the market is doing, though. And that's right. another important part after you go public, I think. Yeah, it's it's interesting you bring up um, uh, Amazon today as a uh, just an observation from the outside. One trend that I think we can observe from Amazon is actually doing corporate innovation well. I, I've like long held this belief that every company has every like really great company has one multi-billion dollar innovation in them, and it's usually their founding insight. And they build that business, and they try desperately to to build other ancillary businesses around it. And some are bigger, and some are smaller. Um, sometimes you you get a Microsoft that has an office and a Windows in them, um, but usually you think about Google, right? And you know, not that there aren't great businesses within Google, but. It's search, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's it's ninety percent on Google display ads. That's the or, or search ads. That's most of the revenue. So the the thing that's amazing to observe in Amazon is uh, an incredible uh, DNA for experimentation and small teams and doing things in a lean way. And as we've observed, there's already been one business that's on the scale of Amazon's original retail business with AWS, and it or bigger perhaps. Yeah, yeah, and um, it, it'll be fascinating to to continue to watch the company and see see what else. I wanted to ask quickly, it's, it's, uh, obviously this happened much later than the IPO story, but, um, about AWS, uh, the, um, uh, listeners, uh, to our show might also listen to Ben Thompson and, and, uh, uh, James Allworth's, uh, podcast exponent. And on one of their recent shows, they were talking about, um, platform mentality and the importance of that at Amazon and, and, uh, perhaps how much DNA came from Microsoft into Amazon in terms of thinking about AWS as as a true platform and and um, uh, Ben and and uh, and the show you know they they posit that uh, this great Bill Gates quote that a platform is when uh, other participants on top of you realize the vast majority of the economics in the industry and you only collect a certain, you know, a small percentage, you know, it's not a, it's not like a a high margin, you know, Google like business. Um, How much, you know, thinking uh, on that level happened at Amazon and during that creation? Well, I don't, I don't think we thought we were, uh, yeah, um, kind of following a Microsoft model. Although I think from the beginning, um, everybody in Amazon recognized that Microsoft had the potential on the cloud to be the most important competitor in that, that as they have become. But the difference, in a way, was platforms were uh, somewhat considered static in the sense that you built a platform and then every couple of years you revised it or you sent out new software or machines. And um, the Internet was so much constant iteration. And so I think that, I mean, I'm 
you know, have never heard this from Jeff or others, but it seems to me with AWS, the difference in a lot of ways, why it's succeeded and been able to take this lead and keep it, partly was being first when others held back, but the constant iteration of AWS. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like it's like revising your internet site. You know, they had 600 new features this year or something. Well, yep. in the old days, platforms didn't do that. Um, they, you know, you came out with Windows 8 or 10, but it was two or three years of massive coding. Um, so I think the world even on that has changed a lot. Right. That's a great point. One other question before we move out of uh, uh, trends and themes is, um, as you're looking at at uh, companies that are pitching Madrona for investment um, in, in recent history, what are things that you learned from uh, Amazon being so successful that you sort of look for in other companies as a, a, a pattern matching uh, based on Amazon? Well, you know, every company isn't going to go public and every company isn't in it probably for the long term, but I really do prefer founders who have a long-term vision and at least in the beginning say they're going to stick with it and i think again it's almost genetic though and you don't know it until it happens and there are lots of reasons to sell your company and your market didn't turn out quite what you thought but you're going to get a good price um but what i really you know hope is that a founder if he's riding the wave as you say or has other reasons doesn't sell out when he could be in it for the long term. And again, it's somewhat personality. And I think, you know, I was very fortunate that Jeff was in this for long term. And so even at moments when he could have gone out and sold the company, he wasn't interested. He wanted to build something for the long term. And, you know, when you think about uh, a lot of the great companies, um, they've had founders who really wanted to accomplish something kind of beyond making the, the profit. Um, we're going to change how people think about software. We're going to change how people do search. So I think, you know, that doesn't guarantee a successful company. But if I, only I always like that, that yeah. longer term, they're thinking about it and, and hopefully going to seek it. Cool. Thanks. Should we wrap up? Yeah, you want to grade it? Yeah. I mean, this is, uh, in some ways, this is tough. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of the end, the coda to the everything store, which is um, uh, Joy Covey uh, and um, uh, the letter that she wrote to to Brad, an email that she wrote to Brad Stone. And she was one of the key sources for the book um, after having done all the all the interviews and just reflecting back on her time in Amazon and then the experience of talking about the story. Um, and she said, you know, Jeff and the company kind of like he knew in the very beginning exactly where he was going and uh you know so many as we talk about on the show so many startup stories and ipo stories and MA stories are twists and turns and wild rides and it feels inevitable that the company would have went public when it did especially you know just hearing the story now um it was completely rational it made sense that it gave the company the scale and the capital and the visibility that it needed to grow uh and outpace competitors um so in some ways, I mean, I guess I think I give it an A. Um, I do give it an A, but uh, it's this might be like the least controversial or, or thought-provoking decision we've had so far on this show for me. Yeah, it's funny. I was just thinking that the same thing. There's there's actually not a lot of analysis that needs to go into it. I mean, you look at the the scale of Amazon today, and even the scale in the years uh, shortly after the IPO. The only way that they could have achieved the outcome that they did was by going public, and I th- I think that. Uh, 
one reason why we had so much trouble in that earlier section uh, of what would have happened otherwise is it just it just doesn't seem yeah, like there was we, a lot of choice. It feels like unnatural to think about <laughs> an alternative history here, right? And I, you know, as uh, as someone who works on early stage startups, a lot of the time there, there's all these like really vague questions around, uh, okay, we think we, we have an idea in the space and we're learning as we're going and, you know, oh, should we be a platform provider or should we be the, you know, business that sits on top of it? Or should, should it all be combined or should, um, we be a horizontal or a vertical business in, in this space? And you even go back and forth long after you started the business, uh, kind of playing both sides there. And it just doesn't seem like Amazon had any ambiguity over, what the long-term vision of uh, of the company was, at least at least the retail business. So, so Tom, you know, hearing that, uh, <laughs> do you agree, or are you laughing at us saying like, "Oh, easy, easy to say from this vantage point"? <laughs> <laughs> well, on the one hand, I I don't think any of us really did um, understand what would Am- Amazon would become, but I think the fact that um, Jeff and and several of us thought the internet was going to be a very big deal and there was lots of potential and who know who knew where this could take you and i think that often happens with technology where you realize that something is going to be very big but you it, knowing the details you know that today aws would have come out of that there was no way to predict that or th- think about that in those days um, but again you know that fits very well when you look back and say what the assets of Amazon were, but also what the, the technology development. So I think uh, Joy is right in the sense that it was in some ways inevitable. I'm just not sure we knew how inevitable it was. Uh, but it took, you know, fabulous commitment to innovation and really, you know, hiring good people. So you should not neglect that for inevitability. Right. Yeah. Okay. With that, carve-outs. And it will be interesting to think how many of our carve-outs will be um, available on or in some way served to you by Amazon. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. Is Amazon's in delivery there somewhere? Either No, no matter what your carve-out is, Amazon is involved in it. That would be interesting to look back at our previous carve-outs and figure out are there any that are not served to you, either on AWS or be able to ship, be shipped to you. Or we'd have to pick something that's basically not a physical good, Uh a physical good that's on some very, very uh, uh, stubborn retailer that, that retails only on their own site. So I don't know. I mean, a site that is not hosted on AWS <laughs> yeah. or, or uses technologies as part of the site that are not hosted by AWS. It would practically be impossible. So <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess that's why Amazon deserves that A that we mentioned a few minutes ago. <laughs> so um, my carve out is uh, uh, a band called The Album Leaf. Um, I actually went to their show last night here in Seattle. I've been a, a longtime fan of the band. They're some of the best working music that that uh, you can imagine. It's a lot of percussion. It's a lot of uh, um, very like mellow synth, but it's it, it's got a little bit of a punch to it. So it's kind of hard to describe. But um, check out the album Leaf. They're they're on Spotify. I'm sure they're on Amazon. And uh, great band. Cool. That's uh, I'll do I'll do a quick side carve out then. Made me think. Um, Jenny and I went to the Stevie Nicks show this weekend in uh, in Seattle, and she was awesome. Uh, her twenty four karat gold tour, uh, so great songs. You know, some of her hits, some of Fleetwood Mac's hits, uh, um, but mostly. And what I enjoyed the most was just songs, you know, from the vault, as she called them, that you know people don't know. 
super great. Mike, official carve out though is um, there's a great article that we'll link to in the show notes. Very fun. Um, there's a seminal paper in Harvard Business Review from the mid 90s, right around when Amazon was being started uh, by Brian Arthur, and it's called Increasing Returns and the New World of Business. And uh, it's uh, it's somewhat academic uh, in uh, topic, but the, the thesis is that in an internet world where distribution costs are very low and your accessible market is everyone, um, you can actually, you know, this old economic theory of diminishing returns that you, you they, the bigger you got, you know, the, the classic example is coffee, uh, plantations, you know, the more coffee you produce, you're going to go to worse and worse, less and less fertile ground, and your coffee is going to get worse and worse. And so you get diminishing returns, uh, on the internet, you actually get increasing returns that the bigger you are, the bigger you get and the better your customer experience becomes. Uh, and, uh, that contributed to sort of the spiritual antecedent to, um, to aggregation theory and Amazon and many of the things that have happened. Super fun uh, thing that came out is um, turns out that Cormac McCarthy, the author, uh, the novelist who you know wrote all the pretty horses and no country for old men and many other, you know, Pulitzer prize winning author, um, Brian Arthur, the economist who wrote the article, he went to Cormac McCarthy for help writing this piece. And so Cormac like basically dismantled the whole piece. They reassembled it together. And when you read it, it, it reads extremely cogently, not like a typical economic, you know, academic paper. Um, and this story came out recently. Very fun. Oh, well, I should uh, appropriately say that on my Amazon Christmas uh, gift list that... <laughs> that uh, actually I've given to my wife is The uh, Undoing Project, a book by Michael Lewis. And I think a lot of us, you know, I like to read books on new technologies. Uh, machine learning is, you know, popular subject around Madrona, and we've been reading books on things like that. But here's one that's not particularly focused on numbers or technologies, but, a di- well, a different kind of technology, which is the psychology of people, which, again, is super important in business, so. I think I look forward to reading it. Yeah, I haven't read it yet either, but I can't wait. Um, Danny Kahneman, the book's about Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky, uh, Nobel Prize winners for basically developing behavioral economics. And uh, um, Daniel uh, Kahneman uh, was and is now an emeritus professor at Princeton, and uh, uh, Michael Lewis is a esteemed Princeton alum as well. And um, I, uh, I took Kahneman's course when I was in school there, and... Uh, Sadly, it was the first year that he had retired and he didn't teach it. So somebody else did, but I took his course and um, uh, had a huge impact on me and uh, looking forward to reading the book. This is a great time to tell you about one of our very favorite companies, Crusoe. So Crusoe, as listeners know by now, is a clean compute cloud provider specifically built for AI workloads. NVIDIA is one of their major partners, and literally Crusoe's data centers are nothing but racks and racks of A100s and H100s. And because Crusoe's cloud is purpose-built for AI and run on wasted, stranded, or clean energy, they can provide significantly better performance per dollar than traditional cloud providers. Yes, we talked about that on our ACQ2 episode with Crusoe CEO Chase Lockmiller. The other element that makes Crusoe special is the environmental angle. Crusoe, of course, locates their data centers at stranded energy sites. So think oil flares, wind farms that can't use all the energy they generate, etc., and uses that power that would otherwise be wasted to run your AI workloads instead. Yep. Obviously, it's a huge benefit for the environment and for customers on costs since Crusoe doesn't rely on the energy grid. Energy is the second largest cost of running AI after, of course, the price you pay NVIDIA for the chips. 
and these lower energy costs get passed on to customers. It's super cool that they can put their data centers out there in these remote locations where quote-unquote energy happens, as opposed to the other hyperscalers such as AWS and Google and Azure who need to build their data centers close to major traffic hubs where the internet happens because they are doing everything in their clouds. Yep. If you, your company, or your portfolio companies would like to use the lower cost and more performant infrastructure for your AI workloads, go to crusocloud.com slash acquired, that's C-R-U-S-O-E cloud.com slash acquired, or click the link in the show notes. Great. Well, that's all we've got. Um, If you aren't subscribed and want to hear more, you can subscribe from your favorite podcast client. And if you feel so inclined and you're a a longtime listener of the show, or if you're uh, new and just joining us for this episode, we would love, love, love a review on iTunes or if you share it on social media with your friends. So uh, thanks so much for, for listening and have a great day. Thank you to Tom for joining us. Thank you. That was fun. Who got the truth? Is it you? Is it you? Is it you? Who got the truth now? Huh?